everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I thought I would talk to you guys about the story of Tina Turner. Now, I didn't really know a whole lot about her and her personal life, aside from some of the things about her marriage with Ike Turner. I was just kind of looking online to see what I could be talking about this week, and I happened to come across an article that talked about some of the greatest comebacks in music history, and Tina Turner was high on the list. And I thought, well, you know what? Let's just kind of dive right into her story because it's kind of a wild ride. Like, Tina Turner is extremely legendary and iconic. Of course, we all know that. Um, But her story is one of sadness and tragedy, but also there's a triumphant ending to all of this. So it's not going to end on a sad note. It's going to end on a high note. So... Tina Turner was actually born Anna Mae Bullock in Brownsville, Tennessee on November the 26th, 1939. And as a teenager, she lived in St. Louis with her family and her sister. So they both went to nightclubs, her and her sister, specifically the Manhattan Club in St. Louis. And so they would just kind of go out at night listening to the music to see what was happening. And it was here in 1957 where they saw Ike Turner and his band called the Kings of Rhythm and they just fell in love with the sound that they were coming out with. So one night, Anna Mae, she goes on stage and she takes over the microphone and she starts to sing and she's noticed by everybody. She's also noticed by Ike Turner and... Her first appearance on a recording, an official recording, was August 1958 under the name Little Anne. And so Ike Turner kind of took her under his wing and would help her to build her career. He would make her a featured singer almost immediately with the Kings of Rhythm. So almost kind of right away, she started from this little unknown girl in St. Louis. And now she's hanging out with Ike Turner who already at that point has an established career, and he's taking her under his wing. A song called Box Top by Ike and Anime was also released, so there was a couple singles here and there that would be released sporadically throughout 1958-59. In March of 1960, Ike ended up renaming her to Tina because it rhymed with Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, which was a comic book character that Ike wanted to copy on stage and do something like that with one of his girls. So he thought Anime was the perfect girl for it, but he renamed her as Tina, and then he added his last name on there. So now she is officially Tina Turner. So I thought, well, that was interesting. I always assumed Tina Turner was her actual name, but see, these are things that you just never really knew before. He also trademarked the name Tina Turner so that if Anime ended up leaving the band eventually, he could replace her and just say, this is the new Tina Turner, but little did he know, there can only be one Tina Turner. There cannot be a multitude of Tina Turners. So Ike and Tina were platonic friends throughout the early stages of their career together. Ike was in a relationship. Tina didn't step in on that. Tina also said that she felt like her relationship with Ike at the time was like that of a brother and sister from another lifetime. So she never even took it any further than just friends. They were friends until about 1960, where they would begin an affair while Ike was with his live-in girlfriend, Lorraine Taylor. So that would kind of start the downward trajectory just a little bit with Tina Turner because Ike Turner would end up being the worst thing for her. It's unfortunate that he kind of in some ways created her, but also 
I feel like anime was born to be a Tina Turner-like performer if she hadn't have met Ike Turner. So in this context, though, it is unfortunate that he had to be the one to bring her up to fame and then also to bring her back down. Her first release as Tina Turner was a song called A Fool in Love, and this was released on July 1960. It was one of her first R&B records, and it was actually one of the first R&B records to cross over onto the white-dominated pop charts. So this is the thing. Tina Turner would set records, and she would go on to set records throughout the rest of her career. So she is making waves in the music industry, but also she's making waves for women as well. The song would end up selling a million copies, over, well over a million actually. So she was doing extremely well for herself. Ike and Tina were starting to date and Tina wasn't happy, right? Tina told Ike that she didn't want to continue the relationship. And this is where Ike would get physically abusive with her. He responded to her by hitting her in the head with a wooden shoe stretcher. Tina said that this incident was the first time he instilled fear in her, but she decided to stay with him because she really did care about him. Well, that's kind of how grooming and abuse happens. They get you to complacency and then they make you think like you can't live without them, you can't be without them, or you're nothing without them, or, oh, I really do care for him, he's a nice guy underneath it all, or whatever. She was already well into being indoctrinated by Ike's abuse, Unfortunately, she tried to leave. She was already pregnant, actually. Ike and Tina Turner's first national TV appearance was October the 3rd, 1960, and Tina was eight months pregnant at this time with Ike's child, so there wasn't a whole lot that she could do. After the birth of their son, Ronnie, in October of that year, 1960, they eventually moved to LA, and then they married in Tijuana later. So they were fully involved with each other from this point on. And unfortunately for Tina, the abuse would only continue. And also he introduced her to drugs. And so she would get heavily addicted to drugs like cocaine and things like that. Um, so poor Tina never really had a chance. After their first major successful hit, Ike created the Ike and Tina Turner Review, which included the Kings of Rhythm, which was his group. And it also had a girl group called the Ikeettes as backing vocalists and dancers. So Ike and Tina were kind of the main vocal point of this Ike and Tina Turner review. And then they had the backing vocalists and band members and dancers. And so everyone was like soaking this up. Like they just became national sensations and even international sensations. And it was doing so well for themselves. Ike put the entire group through a rigorous touring schedule across the U.S., performing 90 days straight in venues around the country. So for about three months straight, practically every day, Ike and Tina would be going on stage and they'd be touring America and it would be kind of a lot because they also had a baby at home. So a couple of songs between 1960 and 1962 were released. Songs such as I Idolized You in November 1960, It's Gonna Work Out Fine in June 1961, Poor Fool in November 1961, Tra-La-La in March 1962. And then eventually came Tina's first solo single where she came out with a song called Too Many Ties That Bind. And this was released in 1964. This was released on Ike's label, Sonia. So 
She was now starting to do her own music while still doing Ike and Tina Turner, but she was trying to branch out to do her own solo stuff, which she deserves to do. I mean, she has just been going, going, going for so long that to think that she couldn't do her own solo stuff isn't really that fair to say because she could do it. She wanted to do it and she did it flawlessly. In fact, I would probably say that her solo stuff at this time probably did even a little bit better than the Ike and Tina Turner stuff, but people just love Tina. People loved her so much that in 1965, Phil Spector invited Ike and Tina Turner to appear in his film, The Big TNT Show. And he was so impressed that he offered $20,000 to produce Tina and sign her to his own label in 1966. And Tina said, that sounds great. Let's do it. Her first single on the label, which was released in May 66, was called River Deep Mountain High, and people absolutely loved this song. She would go on to do some extremely well, well-known, well-renowned, and very popular songs and covers. She was just doing so well for herself. She did so well for herself that in November 1968, Tina became the first woman and Black artist to appear on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. So she was already pushing the boundaries of what was normal at this time, and she was really making waves in many, many, many facets, which is what I was saying. She's not only a Black woman, but she's a woman, and then she's an artist, and so it's all of these things coming together that make her so revolutionary. Ike and Tina then signed to Blue Thumb Records in 1968, and so now they were doing kind of their own stuff again outside of Phil Spector. But the abuse and the drug use did not stop. In fact, it increased throughout these years. Tina later revealed in her book called I, Tina, that Ike was abusive and he cheated on her throughout their marriage, which led to her attempted suicide in 1968 by overdosing on Valium pills. She said that it was my relationship with Ike that made me most unhappy. At first, I had really been in love with him. Look what he'd done for me, but he was totally unpredictable. Ike would be later diagnosed with bipolar in his older age, and so maybe that could be a reason for his mood swings and his violent tendencies, but it doesn't excuse the fact that he was extremely physically, emotionally abusive to Tina, and he treated her horribly. So just because he has bipolar or doesn't excuse his behavior, it's just it could explain some of his behavior, but it doesn't excuse it. Um, so poor Tina was really going through it. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting because on one hand, she's doing so well in her career and people see her as this bubbly, bright personality on stage and she has a beautiful voice. And then you have the real Tina Turner or the anime, right, where she is being abused all the time. So she was struggling big time. In March 1969, the album Out of Season was released. And then in October, the album The Hunter was released. So she just kept on pumping out the music, pumping out the jams for for so long. And she has stopped now. But I mean, she was just on fire for so many years. I think this kind of point in her career was like maybe her peak or one of her peaks because I said she has a comeback. But this was probably one of her major peaks, especially with the song Proud Mary, which was a cover that Ike and Tina did from obviously CCR. Credence Clearwater Revival is the original band that did Proud Mary. In 1971, Tina and Ike covered that song and it became the duo's biggest hit. 
It became such a hit that in 1972, Proud Mary won a Grammy for Best R&B Performance by a Duo or Group. So it's interesting like how they interpreted that song because the original Proud Mary is very fast, but the version that Ike and Tina did is a lot slower, which I actually kind of like. I like both. I love Credence Clearwater Revival, but Ike and Tina's version is really slow and it's a bit more soulful and it's less bluesy. It's more kind of from the soul, which I thought was an interesting choice. Um, Ike and Tina opened their own recording studios in Englewood, California, and this is where a lot of their future music would be released upon. The album Feel Good was then released and she wrote most of the songs for that album as well. So Tina's now coming into her own right in terms of songwriting. Whereas before it was mostly covers and things like that, but now Tina is really kind of trying to take the reins in her career and step it up a bit. And she wants to put, you know, songwriter under her list of credits. So she's stepping into her own with that album, Feel Good. And then August 1973, Tina's next single was Nutbush City Limits. And this was an international hit. It became so very iconic everywhere. People loved that song. Loved it. Tina then ventured into doing her own solo album. Now, at this point in the game for 13 years-ish, she was with Ike Turner, right? She hadn't ventured to do her own album for 13 years. But this was the very first time that she decided, you know what, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make my own solo album. You can kind of maybe leave it up to your own devices what Ike Turner thought about this, but whatever, Tina wanted to do it. So her first solo album was called Tina Turns the Country On, and it was released in September of 1974. And that did so phenomenally to the point where in 1975, Tina was asked to perform in the Who's film called Tommy in London. So she played like an acid queen type of person. She was actually extremely well received by the public and the media for her performance as the Acid Queen. She is just really making waves for her own self and I'm so proud of her for that. She is doing an awesome job. Her second solo album was actually called Acid Queen in relation to the part that she did for the film and it was released in November of 1975. So while she's coming into her own as a solo artist and as a performer, Unfortunately, Ike just kept ramping up the abuse and the emotional abuse, obviously the physical abuse, so many layers of this man and what he's doing to Tina is wrong on so many levels. And she's trying to branch out into her own career. She has two successful solo albums without Ike Turner attached to it. And he gets very upset, right? That's why I, I said, leave it to your own devices to figure out how Ike Turner felt about it. Well, he hated the fact that Tina was doing her own thing without him. So Tina had enough. Tina bravely decided that she was at a point where she could leave Ike. And this was a point where she decided, I've had enough. After they got into a fight on their way to the Dallas Statler Hilton on July the 1st, 1976. And this is an incredible story because she just up and decided that day, you know what, I'm sick of you, I'm tired of you, I'm leaving you. She fled with 36 cents and a mobile credit card in her pocket, nothing else. She wanted to get her children, obviously, to get custody of her children with Ike, her two kids. 
Craig and Ronnie. Um, that was her main concern. But she literally left with only 36 cents and a credit card in her pocket. So I thought that's such a brave, momentous occasion in her life that she finally now thinks that she can leave him. And she does. And that goes to any woman who's in an abusive relationship who has either died uh, at the hands of their abusive partner or they have stayed because they felt like they couldn't for a multitude of reasons. But Tina just thought she would hedge her bets and see how she'd make out. And she left. So on July 27th, Tina filed for divorce on the grounds of irreconcilable, irreconcilable that's a hard word to say, irreconcilable differences. Basically, they couldn't come to terms or agree on anything, basically, which is putting it mildly. Her divorce petition asked for $4,000 a month in alimony and $1,000 a month in child support, and she asked for custody of her sons, like I mentioned. So that's all she really cared about, and as long as he was paying child support, great, you know, that's fine. Um, but she just wanted to get away from Ike completely and everything that he had put her through. And she suffered so greatly because of that man. And she normalized in some aspects the abuse that she was going through. Like most victims do in that circumstance, they normalize what's happening or they internalize it and say, oh, it's my fault when that's not true. So she is petitioning for divorce and that's all she asked for was just some alimony, child support, and her sons. That's all she cared about. So poor Tina, at this point now, she was trying to keep going to make music. At this point in her career, it's public knowledge that her and Ike have divorced, and all the seedy details of their relationship is coming out into the public in a major way, and it's not looking good for Tina in terms of how the media personifies her as a person. She struggled for an extremely long time to jumpstart her solo career again after her divorce. And she was at this point 37 years old. So I think at that time in history and like the 70s, people thought like 30 was old or 40 was old, but it's not. But I'm just saying for the context, especially in the music industry, which is very based upon youth, right? And obviously she's a woman, so she has that against her. As a 37-year-old black woman who's divorced, right? It's just like the odds were stacked against her to try to reform herself. So she tried to make ends meet any way that she could by mostly making appearances on TV. And she purposefully played small venues to pay off any debts that she had. Obviously, you know, a lot of the money she would make in her career was coincided with Ike Turner. Now that they've divorced, she's trying to build her own stable foundation. So she's got a lot of things that she has to pay off. And obviously, a divorce is very expensive. So she has a lot of things that she needs to pay for. And with no one really giving a damn about her music career at this point, she tries to do anything she can. She plays small venues to small crowds that want to see her. She goes on any TV show or whatever that she possibly can to get her face out there so people can remember her and not forget her. In 1977, Tina reemerged with a fresh look to reinvent herself. So she thought, well, maybe I should reinvent myself, maybe have a different hairstyle and a different kind of sound to my music and a different look and things. She released a string 
of solo albums in this time in the late 70s through to the early 80s, but they never made massive waves on the chart and no one seemingly kind of cared about them, you know, unfortunately. And at this point, she ended up losing her recording contract because no one was really caring about her music and her albums didn't chart. No single charted, nothing. So it was hard for her, you know, to try to reinvent herself when no one was giving her the time of day to do it. And she struggled so hard for years. It had to happen at a certain time. And I'm glad that she had this momentous comeback that I'm going to be talking about in a minute here. Um, but, you know, she really is a force to be reckoned with because she kind of beat the Oz and she said, look, I told you so. You maybe didn't believe in my ability to reinvent myself and to come out on top, especially to her ex, right? But she did. Um, the divorce was finalized in March 1978, so this gave her even more credence to actually try hard to reinvent herself in a massive way. And so she thought, well, it's the 80s, it's now 1982, and so she thought, well, music is changing. This new wave, dance, pop kind of Madonna thing is happening. And she thought, well, instead of doing like the soulful folky, bluesy kind of stuff. Why don't I do this new wave pop sound? Uh, and so that's what she ends up doing. She switches her sound completely. And Tina released a cover of The Temptations' Ball of Confusion, and it was a massive hit with European dance clubs. It wasn't particularly a huge hit in the U.S., but this helped to get the ball rolling now with helping to reinvent herself in this new fashion. This led to her signing with Capitol Records, so whether it was a massive hit or not in the U.S. doesn't really matter. The fact is that Capitol Records, who's a massive label, they see this song, this cover, and they take Tina under their wing and they help her out. Tina then ends up releasing a cover of Al Green's Let's Stay Together in November of 1983, and this was another massive hit. So with two hit singles already out in the early 80s, it gave Capitol Records the push and the funds needed to have Tina make another album. Um, so this was looking great for her. Things were looking up already in the 80s. It seems like the 80s was doing Tina much better than a lot of the mid to later portions of the 70s. So the 80s is doing her very well. Now, this is where Tina ends up recording her album Private Dancer, and she recorded this in just two weeks. It didn't take her long at all, which is astounding. And it was released in November of 1984. This would end up being her massive comeback because the biggest hit from the album was her song What's Love Got To Do With It?, I remember hearing this song all the time growing up. My mom would play this song like nonstop. I would hear it on the radio. It's a it's a great, great song. And it actually sounds kind of modern. It sounds timeless, which I think is what makes it so good. I mean, yeah, it's a song from the 80s. You can tell it's like a very 80s kind of pop song. But it also is timeless as well. And it's really, really good. So this was where she get her comeback. It went five times platinum in the US. Private Dancer also sold 10 million copies worldwide and it won Record of the Year at the Grammys in February of 1985. So all Tina needed was just Private Dancer and especially that song What's Love Got to Do With It? And people love her again. People have fallen in love with her and now they're going to see her in concerts. 
They're rooting for her. They love the new look that she's got with the hair and the clothes and the makeup. She's looking really great. Like she's a woman at this point in her 40s, but who cares? People love her. So she totally has a comeback moment that is so amazing that it kind of like is really touching because she struggled so much in her life with her ex, obviously, being abused and then dealing with drug abuse issues as well, substance abuse issues, um, living under his shadow for so long, for decades. And then she's trying to come out as her own solo artist. He doesn't like that, but she ends up saying, you know what, I'm just hedging my bets and I'm going to divorce you now and I'm leaving you now with only 36 cents in her pocket. She only wants her children and to make a life for her and her children. And, you know, for the most part, people didn't really care about a lot of the stuff that she did after her divorce until she released those two covers and then Private Dancer came out. What's Love Got to Do With It? Genuinely, I think that's probably my favorite song of hers, but also I think a lot of people know her for that song, to be honest. I, it, it, I mean, it's a great song. So she did it right by reinventing herself with trying to change up her sound. That I think helped her the most because if she had kept her original sound, I don't think it would have hit at all. I think she probably would have slowly burnt out eventually. But the fact that she changed with the times, which was very important, she definitely made waves again. So this was great for her. Private Dancer made Tina the oldest female solo artist to make it on the Billboard Hot 100 at age 44. So she's, she's doing it. From this point on, her career launched off for a massive comeback. Her music was featured in the movie Mad Max as well, and she released a string of successful hit albums after this point. She is just doing the most. She is being adored by her fans again, like she always should have been from day one, um, but especially since the 70s, because people, I think, didn't treat her that well in the 70s especially the fans and the music industry. They didn't want anything to do with her until she took matters into her own hands. During her Break Every Rule world tour, Tina performed in front of 180,000 fans in Brazil in April of 1988, and it actually set the Guinness World Record for largest paying audience for a solo performer at the time. I don't know who currently holds that record, but she held that record pretty steadily in the late 80s, which again, she's just breaking all these records. She is a phenomenal force to be reckoned with. Over time in the 90s, she continued to feature in many films and she would continue to make more hit music. And it was in the year 2000 when she announced that she would retire. People were very upset about this, but I like that she did it in the year 2000. I think that's actually kind of cool at like the start of a new century. I like that. Um, in 2009, she officially retires from performing. So between 2000 and 2009, she occasionally, not a lot, she occasionally would perform shows. And then she thought, well, that's it for me in 2009. I'm not making any more music. So, and then she's retiring from performing so she can officially rest. And this is kind of where this is, this is actually kind of mind blowing to me. Like the news that I read about after this fact, cause I had no idea about this either. But I just thought it was really, I mean, Tina's just a strong person. Just hear this for a second. So Tina has a longtime partner in Erwin Bach. And from my understanding, he's a German record producer or he's in the music industry, let's just say. 
and they've been together for a long time. They officially tied the knot and got married in July 2013. But poor Tina couldn't catch a break because three weeks after the wedding, she suffered a stroke and had to learn to walk again completely. So it took her about three years to learn to properly walk again. And she hadn't even barely recovered by the time 2016 came around. And in 2016, Tina was diagnosed with kidney failure and intestinal cancer. So she's it's just running the gamut of all of these illnesses and diseases that she is just getting now, so seemingly out of nowhere. And it was told to Tina that her chances of finding a kidney were, were low. Um, and this kind of brought Tina to her knees again because Tina was faced with her own mortality. I think anyone would when you're faced with something as serious as cancer and kidney failure. So poor Tina had considered assisted suicide because she didn't want to let her body be littered with disease and she didn't want to succumb to disease and let her children and her husband see her like that. But luckily, her husband, Erwin, gave her his kidney in April of 2017, and she had a kidney transplant surgery, and it was successful. So thankfully, she's now back in good health, at least as far as I'm aware. At least in present day, she's she's in good health from what I understand. But she really went through it for a long period of time there. Um, it's nice that she, you know, didn't have to worry about making music or touring or performing during this time in her life. So it happened actually kind of perfectly in sync that she retired and then she retires from performing before she got sick. It just kind of happened, I think, in an interesting turn of events. Um, but poor Tina, you know, she she thought she was going to be taken out by all this disease, but she comes back fighting every single time through something like divorce as well and through her illness. I mean, she just kicks ass. So we have to give it to Tina for really for really striving to live her life and not being not being torn down or let down or upset by the things in her life she keeps on pushing. In 2018, Tina would receive the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Grammys and last but not least, the album Private Dancer was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation and the National Recording Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. So that album is officially immortalized forever. So that, in a nutshell, is the story of Tina Turner. Very, very interesting, sad kind of life that she had in a lot of periods in her life, especially when it came down to the abuse that she endured, her divorce, her trying to come back to the music industry as a 30-something, 40-something-year-old and people not giving a damn until she really pushed through to those people and gave them music that they would love and cherish forever to the point where it's now in the Library of Congress for preservation. So she really, really just hit the nail on the head with that album, but also she is a strong woman and she made so many landmarks in history in general. So we have to give it up to Tina. So I hope that you guys learned something today that you hadn't known about before. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. And I will see you guys next Wednesday with a new episode of On The Mix. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye guys.